We'll have one last look at the book of Esther this morning, since we've been here for a couple of weeks. I just didn't want to pass this up. And there are several things that we'll find this morning that should make us very happy. The book of Esther, as you know, is one of only two books in Scripture named uh, for a woman. The other is Ruth. And we'll consider the message this morning as it, that it reveals about God's design for women. Two weeks ago, we had some fun with the Feast of Purim and listened to the Reader's, Reader's Theater-style reading of the complete text. Last week, we thought about the more unlikely of the two heroines in the book, the one always eclipsed by Esther's shadow, but whose courageous moral stand opened the way for the Jews to be saved from annihilation. Anybody remember who that was? That was Queen Vashti the Beautiful. So very lovely to look at. Vashti chose the high road, as you recall, and paid dearly for it. Yet her example has challenged generations for thousands of years, right down to ours today, to make morally courageous choices. Dare to be a Vashti. I wish somebody would write a song, Dare to be a Vashti. We need that. This morning we'll finish up our time in this book by thinking about the remarkable transformation of the lead character of this book. An ordinary Persian orphan girl named Hadassah who morphs into powerful Jewish Queen Esther. But the real story is much more amazing and you can sum it up with these six words. From pretty pleaser to daring easer. If you were to tell the whole story of the book of Esther and you were only given six words to do it, this would be your story. And this morning we're going to unpack this little summary. And if you want to go deeper, then I have a book recommendation for you. Get a copy of Lost Women of the Bible by Carolyn Custis James. Some of you will remember Carolyn James from the time we spent together in the book of Ruth last year. We did seven messages, I believe, in the book of Ruth. Ruth is the other Bible book named for a woman. Carolyn James's book, The Gospel of Ruth, is a magnificent piece of work. This book, Lost Women of the Bible, includes a fascinating character study of Hadassah and her makeover into Queen Esther. Some of what I share with you this morning has roots in this volume, and I encourage you to pick it up. Anything that you read by Carolyn James will be worth your while. It will, you will be rewarded. The curtain lifts on the story of Esther as the most powerful man in the world, Persian King Xerxes, profligate and indulgent grandson of Cyrus the Great, throws a six-month banquet for his top brass to show off his wealth, his power, and his possessions. At the height of the party, the inebriated king summons Queen Vashti to parade herself before his drunken dignitaries as a delicious, fitting final course. Vashti, of course, will not come. So she is deposed and banished forever, sentenced to live out her lonely days for, in forgotten isolation in the house of the concubines. 
That would be a pretty somber tone for her successor, don't you think? Xerxes' next queen will think twice before daring to go against him. Esther enters the story some years later when the king's aides advise him to round up the most beautiful young virgins in the kingdom from which his new queen will be chosen. In the sanitized telling of it, this part of the story is sometimes portrayed as a kind of Miss Persia beauty competition. It was not. Imagine terrified parents trying to hide their daughters from the harem scouts who abduct any girl they please. There is no recourse. Once these girls are brought into the palace, their sole mission for the rest of their lives will to bring pleasure to the king, to please his eye, to satisfy him in bed. We have a label for this kind of thing when it happens today, and it does still happen today. Human trafficking, practiced by rich playboys like Jeffrey Epstein, and from our 21st century perspective, it sickens us. But in 6th century BC Persia, hey, this was just par for the course. We've got to remember that when we read the Bible, we tend to read it through our Western eyes and superimpose in it our American Western values. And that's a huge disadvantage because we miss the critical role that culture plays in the telling of the story and allow us, allow us to understand what's really going on. So what's really going on? Well, the story of Esther takes place within a full-fledged patriarchal culture. The cultures of the ancient Near East and pretty much the whole world were steeped in this fallen understanding of men and women called patriarchy. Some of you will remember that we thought about this a year ago when we were reading through the book of Ruth. Think for a moment about the word patriarch. What comes to your mind? The word patriarch is an honorable word, a good word. It simply means the male head of a clan or family unit. My grandfather Carl was the patriarch of our family on my mother's side. His wife Claris, my wonderful grandmother, was the matriarch. In the Bible, the word patriarch most often refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the fathers of the nation of Israel. The word patriarchy derives from this word, but it's not such a good word. In simple terms, patriarchy is a social system that privileges men over women, that values men over women, where the actions of men command the storyline and the focus, and the women, with very few exceptions, recede into the background. They are dominated by the men. In a culture driven by patriarchy, a woman derives her value from men especially her father, her husband, her sons, and what they think of her. You might recall that in the book of Ruth, the gold standard for determining a woman's value was her ability to produce sons. Do you remember that? 
If you were a woman in the book of Ruth, you were not worth much unless you could make baby boys or unless you had sons. The book of Esther presents a different shade of meaning for patriarchy. Here in Esther, the gold standard for a woman's value is this. Is she compliant to the men around her and is she pretty? Not so different from the way a lot of people in the world still think about it, is it? Esther scores off the charts on both counts, compliance and looks. We're going to think for just a few moments about the reality of what this means for Esther, and it's not good. It's not quite so sweet and innocent as people sometimes imagine it to be. First of all, Esther is a, is a compliant girl, and she aims to please, as she is expected to be. Uncle Mordecai forbids her to reveal her true identity as a Jew. She complies and eludes detection. Mordecai calls all the shots, and Esther obeys. The Bible repeatedly says that Esther pleases those around her. For instance, once inside the harem, she's put under the charge of Hegai, the chief eunuch and the master of the harem. And chapter 2, verse 8 says, the girl pleased him and won his favor. She does everything he says to do. It's how she's been brought up. Although when a girl's turn came to go into the king, she could choose anything she wanted to take with her, Esther lets Haggai do her thinking for her, and she takes only what he recommends. Scripture seems to go out of its way to make sure that the reader knows Esther is a submissive girl. The verse says that she wins the favor of everyone around her, and of course, she also pleases the king, and she does it better than anybody else. Later in the story, she will be careful to preface all her conversations with her husband with the phrase, if it pleases the king. Over and over again, the first half of the book of Esther it presents her as compliant, submissive, dependent, and obedient to the men around her, always. She is a pleaser. And second, she is beautiful. The Bible says that before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete a year-long beauty treatment, marinating in oils and perfumes for 12 months before being served up in her tryst with the king, who rated each girl's performance and decided her fate like a woman on tinder, but with enormous consequences. Just imagine the potential for rejection and degradation, the young lives spent and ruined in a night. It's kind of hard to think about, isn't it? But Esther is very pretty, and when her turn comes for a one-night stand with the king, she delights him more than all the other virgins, wins his heart, and walks away with Vashti's crown. This isn't usually the way we tell the story to Esther in our primary and kindergarten Sabbath school classes, is it? Esther doesn't just survive her abduction into the harem. She makes the most of it. She auditions for the king's crown, the queen's crown, by sleeping with a man who is not her husband. 
And the scripture is, is quite explicit about this. The way verse 14 reads in the original language is that in the evening the woman would leave from the house of the virgins and in the morning she would return to the house of the concubines. But that's not all. After winning the tiara, Esther joins herself in marriage to a pagan man. And by the way, this happens just around the time that back in her homeland, in Jerusalem, Ezra the priest is taking drastic measures to restore the purity of her fellow Israelites. And guess what he's doing? He's breaking up marriages, including families with children. He is demanding divorce between Israelite men and foreign pagan women in an effort to stave off God's anger for their flagrant disregard of his word. You can read about that just a few pages back in Ezra, the ninth chapter. So how's that for contrast? But Xerxes has no idea who Esther is because she keeps her secret in the closet. She's a second or third generation exile, so her cover-up is much easier. She speaks perfect Persian with no telltale Hebrew accent. She is thoroughly Persian in her dress, conversation, and manners. And of course, she accepts the culture's view that because she is a woman, her ability to please and her beauty are the things of value that she has to offer. Even her Persian name, Esther. You've probably heard what the name Esther means. Who knows what the name Esther means? Anybody? Star, yeah. Uh, and she is certainly the star of the show. But some scholars believe Esther also derives from the term Ishtar, which is the name of a Babylonian goddess. And... The three-letter root word of Esther in the Hebrew language means to hide or to be hidden, which is exactly what she does. And so she forgets that she is Hadassah, a daughter of the covenant, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah, an image bearer of the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth. She hides her identity and she becomes a compromiser. And people say, well, she had to. She didn't have a choice. But we know of other young Jewish exiles faced with dire consequences who refused to be intimidated. Daniel in King, the king of Babylon's court. Joseph in Potiphar's house in Egypt. They came under terrific pressure and at great personal risk, they held their ground out of loyalty to God but not Esther. Have you ever wondered why not? She morphs right into the culture in which she is immersed. Her purpose slips from pleasing God to making Xerxes happy whenever he happens to send for her. For five long years, she accepts the sexual mores of the pagan world and enjoys the luxuries of her privileged status. We don't often think about Esther this way, do we? The pretty pleaser. Now this begs the question, how could God possibly use someone like that for something so important? Someone as deeply flawed as Esther and Mordecai even 
to confront evil and pull off the salvation of an entire nation? How could he do that? That's pretty simple, really. Deeply flawed people are all he's got. Deeply flawed people are all he's got. God chose her anyway, in spite of the patriarchy, or maybe to confront it. God chose her, flaws and all, for his plan and his purpose, and I think we should be really happy about that. If God were looking for perfection, he would have bypassed the likes of Esther and Mordecai or even Ezra, and he certainly wouldn't be choosing any of us. He would have come up empty because here's the thing. We're all deeply flawed, every one of us. We tend not to believe that, don't we? We compare ourselves to other people with glaring moral defects and we think, well, I'm not that bad. Yes, we are. But Esther's story restores our hope that God has important plans and purposes for all of us, no matter who we are, no matter, no matter how many times we have made bad choices. And this is good news, I think. And he has a plan for us too. But wait, there's even more. Because the story takes place in Persia during the reign of Xerxes. And historians know exactly who this king was. He was the fourth king in the Persian Empire. He ruled from 486 to 465 BC. We even know who his mother was. She was Atosa, one of the daughters of Cyrus the Great. And that name might be ringing some bells for you. In case you're wondering why this is significant, Cyrus the Great was the king who freed the Jews from their Babylonian captivity. He was the one who let them go home. God had allowed his people to be exiled from their homeland to Babylon as a discipline and as a judgment for their sin, specifically for their brazen idolatry, their neglect of the Sabbath, and their ongoing exploitation of marginalized classes of people. That's likely when Esther's grandparents were deported. King Nebuchadnezzar carried off most of the population beginning in about 605 BC and culminating when the temple was completely destroyed in 586. But remember, the sojourn in Babylon was only a temporary timeout. God promised at the end of how many years? 70 years, he would call his people out of Babylon and gather them back in their homeland and they would have a new start as his covenant people. King Cyrus was the one who made that call. And by the way, the prophet Isaiah refers to Cyrus as God's Messiah. He was a prototype of the Messiah because he was the one who first called God's captive people out of Babylon and back to their homeland. And he calls him, Isaiah, God actually calls Cyrus by name a hundred years before he's even born. And you have to remember, this was not just some casual invitation God was making to his people. It was urgent. It was their summons. He was about to punish the Babylonians for their sin, and he wanted his people out. Jeremiah writes, the wall of Babylon will fall. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. And many did. 
Many left Babylon and Persia, and they returned home. That's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. That began in 586 B.C., or 538 B.C., 538. But wait a minute. God calls his people out of Babylon in 538, but the story of Esther takes place sometime around 479. That's almost 60 years later. The people of God weren't even supposed to be in Persia in the last, for the last half century. And yet, here's Esther and many thousands of her people still there. They haven't responded to God's call. They never went home because they had become, become comfortable and acculturated in the pagan land. And of course, you know that the book of Revelation uses this story of God calling his people out of Babylon in 538 and applies it in a universal sense to the close of human history when God again calls his people who have become comfortable and acculturated to come out of spiritual Babylon and to come home. And the reason he calls them out is so they won't be partakers of her sins or caught up in the punishment that God is about to deliver. So this is Esther, okay, heedless of God's call, and yet he uses her in absolutely remarkable ways. He guides her and he intervenes on behalf of his recalcitrant people. This is just amazing. God's great mercy, his patience, his loving kindness, his compassion toward his erring children are so magnificently displayed here in the book of Esther. And we ought to be so very happy about that. You know why? Because he treats us the same way. We are all flawed and fallen. And how often do we miss what he's saying to us? when he calls, or do we just ignore it? And yet he is patient with us and long-suffering and kind. And the verse we just sang of that song goes, praise him for his grace and favor to our fathers in distress. Praise him still the same forever, slow to chide and quick to bless, glorious in his faithfulness. He just loves us so much. There's a wonderful, wonderful passage that affirms this, written by Jeremiah after the final destruction of Jerusalem, after his people had been slaughtered and the remainder, the remnant, carried away to Babylon, after their world and everything they had known had collapsed into wreckage and ruin. Jeremiah writes, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, because... His, passion, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's a song based on that verse, and we'll sing it in just a few moments. But back to Esther's story. For five long years, she plays the part of the pretty pleaser, and then the crisis comes. It had already been brewing, a conflict had been simmering between Mordecai the Jew and another nobleman, Haggai, uh, Haman the Agagite, Xerxes' right-hand man. 
Animosity between them soon spiraled out of control. These two men embodied the age-old struggle between God's people and their enemies. Haman slakes his thirst for revenge by plotting the extermination of all the Jews. When the order goes out, it's crisis time for Esther in the citadel of Susa. Now, scholars recognize the book of Esther is structured in chiastic form. You would expect that, wouldn't you? That means the themes in the opening chapters are mirrored by parallel themes in the closing chapters. And the climax of the chiasm, the hinge where the plot turns, is chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. What's going on here? Well, it's not the first time God uses an insomnia to arrest the attention of an insolent ruler. But instead of calling for concubines to soothe him, he orders the book of the Chronicles of his rule to be brought and read. Maybe God has something to do with his choice of entertainment as well. And there he hears of an event long forgotten. His very life had been saved by the faithful act of one of his subjects, a loyal Jew, whose death warrant he only recently signed. This is the turning point in the story. This is the, the apex of the book. Before this sleepless moment, everything looked very good for Haman and very, very bad for all the Jews. But after this point, the fortunes of both exactly reverse. But on the day the decree goes out, calling for all the Jews to die, Esther's world turns upside down. No longer will her system of keeping everybody happy work. No longer will she be able to depend on others to think for her and take care of her. She will have to think for herself. And the fate of a whole nation hangs in the balance. Suddenly, a hidden, voiceless Esther must find her voice and stand up to the most powerful man on earth with no one to protect her and no one to hold her hand. Initially, she offers excuses, but Mordecai, up to this point, her counselor and her protector, is strangely unmoved. He sends her a message. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, if you remain hidden at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. It will come from another place because God is faithful. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. What will she do? Everything the situation demands goes against the grain of her culture, her upbringing, her habits, and her conditioning as a woman and what is expected of her. Now she will have to respond to God's call on her life. She will have to become the woman he created her to be. And she does. Her first action is loaded with significance. She commands Mordecai to call all the Jews and fast for three days. This is huge. She hasn't simply been cowed into submission by Mordecai's demand. She responds with enthusiasm and conviction. 
This is the decisive turning point in Esther's character development. Up to this point, even though she's queen, she has remained obediently under Mordecai's authority. Now she is the one who sets the conditions, and she is the one who gives the commands. And then, after committing her cause into God's hands, she dons her royal robes and braces herself to approach the king. Though her people have fasted, she has no guarantees. Surely she must feel all the anxieties of a death row inmate awaiting a governor's last-minute pardon. Male artists who portray this moment, this terrifying encounter, often depict a swooning Esther being supported by her maids. If you Google it, that's what you will find. Esther didn't swoon. She just stepped out, took the risk, and did what she had to do. Carolyn Custis writes, I quote her here, Old Testament scholars are in awe of Esther's remarkable metamorphosis from a passive, compliant young woman into a powerful leader who displays courage, wisdom, and political savvy. She begins as a non-entity, valued in that courtly world only for her good looks and her body. But she resolutely accepts Mordecai's challenge to use her position as queen to act for the salvation of her people. In one decisive moment, she becomes a force to be reckoned with, a woman of courage, cunning, ingenuity, and diplomacy in a world that was not only ruled by men, but devalued women." And the Bible has a word for that kind of woman, a woman who will embrace this image of God identity that God created within her. That word is ezer. It's a wonderful Hebrew word. Does anybody remember where the word ezer comes from? Anybody? It comes from Genesis 2, verses, verse 18. It comes from the Garden of Eden. Okay? It was in that very good, pre-fall, perfect paradise that God looked at that solitary man that he had made and said, it is not good. For that man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Easer, a suitable helper. King James translates it, help meet. Unfortunately, in our own culture, many people still think that term carries the idea of submissiveness or of passivity or of obedience or of inferiority a holdover from patriarchy. It does not. Ezer means the one who rescues, the one who saves, or the one who is strong. Now this all is a review. You know that, right? You remember this. We've covered this many times. In the beginning, the woman was not created as an inferior in any way, but as a strong partner who would rescue or save the man from his condition of aloneness from his isolation. She was created to stand by his side as an equal so that together the man and the woman in the image of God could accomplish the twin mandates given to them by God. The twin mandates of one, ruling over the creation, and number two, populating the planet. God created the woman as an easer, not to serve the man, but to serve with the man. 
This word occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. In two cases, it refers to the woman in Genesis 2. Three times it refers to powerful nations that Israel called on for help when they were besieged. And in the remaining 16 cases, the word refers to God himself, our helper. Oh God, our help in ages past. He's a strong one who comes to the aid and he comes alongside us in our times of helplessness. That's an easer. This is exactly the role that God called Esther to fill. Until the crisis, she had lived by the culture's view of who she was and what gave her value. And she had been warned. She had seen Vashti's experience. Uncle Mordecai had had told her to keep quiet, remain hidden. She had learned by experience that what mattered most about her was on the outside. No one ever looked beneath the surface or wondered what gifts God had given to her or what contributions she was supposed to make. No one inspired her to look around for opportunities to push back the darkness and advance God's kingdom. But Esther was not just an ornament. God had a purpose for her and a plan for her based on who he had created her to be. He actually put her in a position that compelled her to become a bold, courageous rescuer and do some rescuing of her own. He made her beautiful, but he also made her strong and smart and able to lead. And when she found the courage to embrace that, she became a leading participant in the saving of her nation. God transformed her from a pretty pleaser into a daring easer. He set the whole thing up so that Esther might become the woman he created her to be. He gave mighty King Xerxes a night of sleeplessness, which set in motion the whole undoing of Haman's wicked schemes. And I think we should be very glad and very happy about that, too. Because her story reminds us that God will arrange things so that we can become the people he has created us to be. He is interested in our transformation. He is willing for us to transcend this fallen culture to become who he intended us to be. Image bearers of the living God, ambassadors for his kingdom, and he will help us do just that. We all have vital roles to play in the story of God's kingdom right here, right now. By the end of the story, Esther is working hand in hand with Mordecai. She uses her authority to advance him in the kingdom and together they collaborate. They issue orders uh, that arrest the peril that threatens to annihilate the Jews. She's working hand in hand with King Xerxes. She did a whole lot more than merely beg the king to prevent the atrocities from happening to her people. The king empowered her, and she acted decisively. This was her calling as a woman, to wage war against the enemies of darkness and fight for God's kingdom and his people. And in so doing, Esther became one of the finest examples we know in the Old Testament of an Ezer and one of the finest examples of what Carolyn James calls the Blessed Alliance. A powerful man 
teamed with a powerful woman working together to advance the kingdom of God in a fallen world. That's his calling to all of us, every one of us. In the final few minutes here, I want us to think about one other fascinating characteristic of this book. And Hebrew scholars say that this is really the genius of the whole, the whole book. God is never mentioned. Neither Esther nor Mordecai ever speak his name. There is no thunderbolt from heaven, no divine dream, no vision, not anything, even remotely religious beyond the act of fasting, not praying, but fasting during a time of crisis. And as the name Esther comes from the root that means hidden, so God remains hidden, which actually becomes the theological foundation of the whole book. Critics might say, and they do, uh, that story is profoundly secular. And some of them even claim that it's a work of fiction. But woven into the prose is a deeply passionate and decisive theology of God's providence. He is everywhere at work behind the scenes here. The many remarkable coincidences and the stunning reversals, they can't be explained any other way except by the hidden hand of the Almighty at work in events transpiring in the story. I mean, if you had to make this up, you couldn't do it. He keeps his promises. He defends his people, even the ones who choose not to return home to the promised land. He acts through all the chaotic and what seems like unrelated events to bring about his good purpose. And this is also good news. This should make us happy because this is where we live our lives for the most part. You know, Persia was a very secular nation and we live in a terribly secular nation right now. Now, we all know God can work awesome and mighty miracles like he did when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, but those kind of things are very rare. Most of the time, he is hidden to us, just as he was hidden in the book of Esther. But he works, nevertheless, through circumstances, providentially ordering and orchestrating events and lives to bring people closer to him and to execute his ultimate plan. His presence may seem far away, and we do live in that profoundly secular culture, but if Esther teaches us anything, it's that if we open our eyes, we will begin to see his hand at work all around us, everywhere, and we can trust that he is working for his people even in the darkest of times. So that's the book of Esther, the unseen arm of the Almighty who advocates for his prodigal people, the courageous woman whose true inner beauty is revealed at last as she finds her voice and steps into the easer God created her to be, and the magnificent, faithful God whose love is steadfast, whose blessings come to us day after day. Let's sing. I invite you to stand as we sing this last song.